Well, thank you for being here this morning. If you've been coming to our series, What is God Like? I've been saying over and over again, in order to know what God is like, you first of all have to have a relationship with him. You can read all the books, you can know all of the stuff that's in, you can know the Bible cover to cover, but unless you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and him alone, you'll never truly know what God is like. And in talking about what God is like, we've been looking at the incommunicable attributes of God. And what I mean by that, these are attributes that God and he alone has. He alone is immutable, means that he is unchanging. You think about our lives, we change all the time, but God never changes. We talk about the omnipresence of God, that God is everywhere present at the same time. We cannot be omnipresent. We can only be one place at one time. Even the Satan himself is not omnipresent. He can only be at one place at one time. And so only God has the attributes of these incommunicable attributes. He and he alone has. And last week we talked about his omnipresence and his omnipotence, meaning that he is everywhere, present at the same time. And also his omnipotence means that he is all-powerful and that, uh, that he has the ability to do what he wants to do when he wants to do it because he is all-powerful. And in order for us to truly understand who God is and what he is like, once we've had that relationship with him, we have to understand these incommunicable attributes of God. And we talked about omnipresence, omnipotence, and this morning we're going to talk about omniscience, meaning that God knows everything. But here's the thing about omniscience. When we talk about omniscience, and I ask you what that means, typically people say, well, God knows everything. There's, any, there's nothing God does not know. But as we will learn this morning, the omniscience of God grows way deeper than just not God knowing everything. And when you talk about the omnis of God, omnipotence, the omnipresence, and the omniscience of God, you also must have to talk about the sovereignty of God. So this morning, we are going to look at the omniscience of God and the sovereignty of God. As I was studying this week, I found a quote from A.W. Tozer. And it said, anything God has ever done he can do now. Do y'all believe that? Say amen. amen. Anything God has ever done anywhere, he can do here. Amen. Yes, amen? Only Larry believes that. Does anybody else believe that? Yes. I'm going to say it again. Will you say amen? Anything God has ever done anywhere, he can do here. Amen. Anything God has ever done for anyone, he can do for you. Amen. Right? I love that. I love that. That is talking about God's omniscience, his omnipresence, and his omnipotence. No, if I ask you the question, what does it mean for God to know everything? What is it the omniscience of God really means? We can give all kinds of answers, and most of them, again, would boil down to, well, he knows everything. Let me give you a couple of definitions, A.W. Tozer's definition. God possesses perfect knowledge and therefore has no need to learn but it is more. It is to say that God has never learned and cannot learn. Now, I really like that definition, saying that God cannot learn, meaning that there is nothing else for God to know. And when you put it like that, it's pretty awesome, isn't it? To know that there is nothing else that God could ever learn or to know. Gruden uh, definition in his systematic theology book says, God fully knows himself, and all things actual and possible in one simple and eternal act. 
to just say God is all-knowing doesn't really explain who God is. So this morning we're going to look at God's omniscience first. So where do we begin? Of course, the only place to begin is with the Word of God. So I'm going to go to a lot of different passages this morning. They'll all be on the screen. I don't have one central passage today, so keep up with on the screen, okay? The first one is Isaiah chapter 40. In Isaiah chapter 40, the prophet Isaiah asks a set of rhetorical answers, uh, questions, excuse me. He says in verse 13, who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? And if you jumped over to the New Testament, in Romans chapter 11, Paul writes, For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? See, both the prophet and the apostle ask, Is there ever a conceivable time in which God in any way, shape, or form had to receive knowledge that he did not pass from eternity? And the answer, of course, is no. God has always possessed all of this knowledge from eternity past to eternity future. God has all of the knowledge and cannot learn. And I love that fact that there is nothing that God doesn't know. If he had to consult another being, he would not be God. If he had to consult another being, he would not be omniscient. And he would, not, he would be imperfect and not know himself or the creation that he created. So you think about that. If God is omniscient, he must know himself fully. If God has no beginning and no end, that he has always been, and we know that God has always been because he is the creator. There was no one who created him, so he is. And when we go back to Genesis chapter 1, it says in the beginning God created. It doesn't even say where God come from. It just assumes that there is a God. And we understand who that God is. He is Yahweh, Jesus Christ. This is the God that we love and serve. And so we know that God has no beginning, and if he has no beginning and he has no end, he must fully know himself. Now think about that for a minute. You think you don't even really know yourself. I mean, I think I was about 45 before I even began to know myself, right? And, but God knows himself. He knows himself from beginning to end. And not only does God know himself and he knows all of creation, God has made himself known to you and me. Isn't that wonderful? God has made himself known. Now I understand that there are atheists and agnostics out there. The atheist says there is no God. The agnostic says, well, yeah, maybe there's a God, but I don't believe in it. See, God says there is no excuse in Romans chapter one. It says, for what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. You see what Paul is saying? You have no excuse. If you really truly want to know what God is like, he says you have no excuse because he has made himself known for his invincible, invisible attributes. That's what we've been talking about. His incommunicable attributes. Those attributes that he and he alone has. Next week we will start talking about his communicable attributes. Like love and grace and kindness. But for now we're talking about those attributes that only he has. For his invisible attributes. Namely, listen to this. His eternal power. What is that? That is his omnipotence. And his divine nature, that is uh, his omnipresence, and his omniscience. 
have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made. So they are without excuse. I don't care what the atheist says. I don't care what the agnostic says. God has made himself known in all of creation. When you look at the birds, the trees, the sun, the stars, and everything that God has created, he has made himself known. And most important, he has made himself known through his son, Jesus Christ. If you want to know God, it starts with the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, and you have to have a personal and real relationship with him. If you have not put your faith and trust in Jesus alone, let me tell you, number one, you'll never know what God is like, and number two, you will not spend an eternity with God. You will spend an eternity separated from him in a place called hell. Have you put your faith in Jesus? Listen, there is nothing more powerful than the name of Jesus. Have you put your faith in him? God knows all that can be known instantly and ready, readily. I like that part, that God knows everything instantly and readily. Think about this for a moment. If God, wouldn't it be cool if Jesus just kind of poof, appeared, right? And when he did, he's going to do a little Q&A session, right? And we'd have somebody run around with a microphone. Hey, Jesus, what about, and hey, you know, wouldn't that be fun? And what if we did that and somebody raised their hand and said, hey, Jesus, how many sands, sand, uh, grains of sand are there on the, on the coast of Texas? You know what, Jesus, he wouldn't have to get his calculator out. He wouldn't have to go and send a few million angels down there with tweezers to begin to count them. He would just know. He would intuitively know that answer. He knows it because it is actual fact. He knows every grain of sand there is on not just the coast of Texas, but every grain of sand there is in the world. He just intuit. So he knows all things actual. And get this. He knows all things actual, and he knows even the minutest details of your life. Think about that. There is nothing that doesn't happen, nothing that he doesn't know about you. Listen, listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6. Do not be like the Pharisees, for your father knows what you need before you even ask him. Listen. He wants us to come to prayer. He wants us to ask us for things. He wants us to do that because we have a relationship with him. And that's how you grow your relationship. You talk to him and he talks to you through the word of God, through the Bible. But you ought to know that he already knows what you need. He knows every place you're going to go. He knows every need that you have in your life. He knows there's not enough food in the pantry right now. He knows and because he knows, he will provide. And because he knows and because he loves you, he will do something about it. And he knows every minute details about your life. Matter of fact, it says in Matthew chapter 10, even the hairs of your head are numbered by God. He knows. And listen, he doesn't have to, I, I'm looking at somebody, I'm not, wait, I can't look at you, Donnie, sorry. But you know, God knows. I can count all of Donnie's hairs right now. But God knows all, is it okay that I pick on you? Thanks, Donnie. I'll buy you lunch, is that deal? Connie said, don't pick on me today, and you just happened to be right there, I'm sorry. God knows. 
He doesn't have to count them. He doesn't have to get angels to do it. He doesn't have to have it. He intuitively knows. And so that means that he knows everything that is actual or real without having to think about it, having to recall it. He just knows. And get this, not only does God know everything actual, he knows everything possible. Now that's amazing to think about that, right? He knows every situation that could happen and what the outcome of that situation would be. And you go, how do you know that, right? How can God know everything possible? If, if you were driving down the road and there comes a fork in the road, listen, God knows which way you're going to go before you even know which way you're going to go. He knows every possible direction. And he knows if you took the left instead of the right, he knows every possible situation along the road that would happen if you went left instead of right. He knows everything possible. And you say, well, how do I know that? Because the Bible teaches that. In Numbers, uh, excuse me, in, in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 23, David and his mighty men of valor, there's 600 of them, okay? And they're running from King Saul. King Saul wants to kill David and his men. And so they're running from King Saul. And so David and his men find sanctuary with the men of Keilah. Now the men of Keilah are there and they're protecting him, but David senses that there's something funky going on, okay? And so he gets on his knees and he begins to pray to God. And he says, hey God, is Saul going to find us here with the men of Keilah? And God says, yes. And then he says, okay, God, if, if uh, Saul finds us here with the men of Keilah, will Keilah turn me and my men over to Saul to be killed? And God said, yes. David got the answer from God that Saul would find them and that Saul would kill them if they stayed where they are. But Saul did not find them and Saul did not kill them. You know why? Because they left. But God knew it was possible if David would have stayed, that Saul would have found him, and Keilah, the men of Keilah, would have turned him over to Saul to be killed. God knew everything possible. God told David about a potential event in the future that never happened. God's knowledge extends to not only actual events that actually occur, but every possible event that could ever occur. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? And not only do we see that in the New Testament, but we also see that in the Old Testament. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus is, he's really rebuking the people. Jesus has done great miracles all over, all over town, right? He's been in different provinces of Israel. He's been doing these miracles. And now these people are rejecting him. And so Jesus rebukes the people that are rejecting him. And he says to the cities of Capernaum, Chorazin, and Bethsaida, he goes, listen, if I would have done the miracles in Sodom and Gomorrah, in Tyre and Sidon, like I have done for you, guess what? God would not have destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah or Tyre and Sidon because they would have repented and turned to God. But I didn't do my miracles there. Therefore, God did destroy them. And you can go back and look it up in the Old Testament. God destroyed those cities because they would not repent. And here is Jesus telling Bethsaida, Capernaum, and Chorazin saying, listen, you old hard-hearted people, 
those people that we destroyed, that my father destroyed in the Old Testament, man, y'all are lucky. Because if they were as hard-hearted as you, you should be destroyed too. It's unbelievable. So God knows even the potential things that have not happened yet, and he knows the potential of what could happen um, in the future. So here we are. So God knows all things actual and possible. Those things that, how many grains of sand there are, he knows the actual number. He also knows every possibility of anything that would ever happen. He also knows you and me intimately. And I think this is my favorite part about God's omniscience. And maybe it's also the scariest part about God's omniscience. God knows you intimately. Last week when we were talking about God's omnipresence, we said that, that God, David in Psalm 139 said, there is no place and nowhere I can run and hide from you. If I go to the tallest mountain, you're there. If I go up to Mars itself, you are there. If I go to the bottom of the deepest ocean, you are there. I could go as far as I can to the right or as far as I can to the left. God, you are there. There is nowhere, not even the darkness can hide me. And now in Psalm 139, verses 1 through 4, he says, Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways, even before a word. You get this? Even before a word is on my tongue. Behold, O oh Lord, you know it all together. <coughs> Excuse me. So David is saying, everything. Everything that I do, everything that I think, everything that I say, everything, God knows. God knows our thoughts. He knows our actions. He knows our words. He knows what you'll say before you say them. And guess what? God even knows every day of your life, even before you were born. If you jump down to Psalm 139 and verse 16, it says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. David is saying, you know every step I'm going to take of every day before that, before I was even born. Praise God, we have a God that knows us intimately. Now, it's scary. Because God knows us intimately. He knows every step. He knows every path. He, never, he knows every word that, that we're going to say. He knows every thought that we don't say. Everything is laid bare out before the Lord. That's a scary thought, isn't it? If you were reminded every day, all day long, that God knows what you're thinking. He knows what you're about to do. Do you think that your thought life or your actions might change? Mine certainly would. Listen, I told somebody in between services, I have to preach this to myself before I preach it to you. I've been working on this, this particular sermon for over two weeks, and guess what? And for the last two weeks, I've been having to go, okay, God, I can't think that, sorry, because I know you know I'm thinking that, Right? And just imagine if we kept that thought in our mind all of the time. Maybe we would live our lives a little bit differently. 
to know and understand the omniscience, the omnipotence, and the omnipresence of God is a great reminder of his love and his grace and his protection over us. God knows everything actual and possible. He has the power and the might to do what is necessary, whether it is actual or possible. And God is always where he needs to be to do whatever he needs to do, whether it is actual or possible. So no matter what is going on in your life, God knows. He is there, and he is strong enough. He is powerful enough. He is mighty enough to either remove you from that hurt or even better yet, to walk through it with you. He is there. I don't care what's going on. I don't care how something has transpired. If you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, he is there, no matter what. To go hand in hand with the omnis of God, we talked about the omniscience, the omnipotence, and the omnipresence of God. If you could take those three incommunicable uh, attributes and you put them on one side of a coin, on the other side of that coin would be the sovereignty of God. Because you cannot have the omnis without the sovereignness. And you cannot have the sovereignty without the omnis. So when I start to explain the sovereign of God, what does that mean to you? Just stop for a second and think. What does it mean for God to be sovereign? And here's, I think, with the answers that I would get. Well, he's king, he's ruler, he's master. All of them are right answers. But see, when we say king, he's ruler, he's master, well, he's just some big God way out there somewhere. And yeah, he's in control of everything out there. But when we talk about the sovereignty of God and we compare and, and we do it in the same sentence as the omnis of God, you have to understand that he is ruler, he is master, and he is king, not just out there, but in here. In order for him to be sovereign, it starts, he has to be sovereign in your own heart. And is God really sovereign in your heart? See, when we talk about the sovereignty of God, we must be reminded of, the, of those implications, what it means that he is sovereign. God has the right and the power to rule over all things, beginning with your heart. He has the right and the power to rule over all things, beginning with you and with me. Have you given him that right and power? Well, it's not something you have to give. Have you recognized that right and that power? See, he is not obligated to anyone outside of himself, but acts always according to his own purpose and will, even in your own life. He always acts to his purpose and his will. At one time in church history, the sovereignty of God was lifted up. It was talked about greatly. But now the sovereignty of God in the church today has been dumbed down to one thing. It's been dumbed down to what it means. It's been dumbed down to either 
I'm a reformed theologian or an Arminian theologian. I'm either a reformed theologian or a non-reformed theologian. And what I mean by that, when most people today talk about the sovereignty of God, all they want to talk about is the soteriology. That means salvation, how people are saved. And listen, the sovereignty of God is way more than just how someone is saved. The sovereignty of God rules over all of creation. The sovereignty of God rules over all of history. And of course, the sovereignty of God rules over redemption as well. And so when we dumb it down today to talk about how somebody is saved or that God sends this person to heaven and this person to hell, when we dumb it down to that level, we don't even really know what the sovereignty of God truly means. And so in order to know what true sovereign of God is, what it means to be truly sovereign, is we have to understand who God is and what he is like. And we have to have a personal relationship with him. Let me, let me just read what Dr. A.W. Pink, when he was asked, what do we mean by the sovereignty of God? Let me read his answer. We mean the supremacy of God, the kingship of God, the godhood of God. To say that God is sovereign is to declare God is God. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the most high, doing according to his will in the army of heaven among the inhabitants of earth so that none can stay his hand or say unto him, what doest thou? To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the Almighty, the possessor of all power in heaven and earth, so that none can defeat his counsel, thwart his purpose, or resist his will. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the governor among the nations, setting up kingdoms, overthrowing empires, and de determining the course of dynasties as pleases him. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the only potentate, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, such is the God of the Bible. Is that your God? This is our God. This is his sovereignty. God's sovereignty is a natural consequence of those incommunicable attributes that we've been talking about. Within Christendom, there is a debate to where God's sovereignty begins and where it ends, how it works in our salvation experience and how it works in for foreknowledge and all of those things. And we can talk about all of those things, but not today, because today we want to focus on more than just the redemption part. We want to focus on what God's sovereignty really is about. So how do we do that? Let's begin at the beginning. In Genesis 1, we've talked about Genesis lately. In Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning was, uh, I fix it with you, John 1. In the beginning, God created. The Bible doesn't tell us who God is or where God from. It just assumes that he is there. And it says that he created. In the beginning, he created. So clearly, if he created, he is sovereign over his creation, yes? He has to be in control of the creation in order to create. 
So from the very beginning, we see that he is sovereign. And if you look throughout the Bible in both the Old and New Testaments, there are hundreds of references that talk about God's sovereignty. And, I mean, just think about Jesus alone. Just think about the four Gospels alone. Every time Jesus healed a person, every time he made someone see that was blind, every time that he healed any person, every time he was showing his sovereignty over his creation, yes? God is sovereign over all of creation. And, not, and much more than that, he is not just sovereign over creation. He is not just the creator of creation, but he is also the controller of all creation. You remember Jesus and his disciples in Mark chapter 4. There they are. The, the, Jesus at the bottom of the boat. The disciples, oh me, look, here comes the wind and the waves. We're going to die, right? And so they're, they're all upset, and Jesus is at the bottom of the boat taking a nap, and they, hey, Jesus, get up. Don't you care about us? And with three words, Jesus calmed the storm. Peace be still. And the waves and the wind went away, and they obeyed God. He is sovereign. And the Bible says, and the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. So God is not only the creator, but he is also this, uh, the one who controls all of creation. The sovereignty of God creates, he controls, and he sustains creation. And I love this part. In Hebrews chapter 1, it says, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And listen to this. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He upholds the universe. Jesus, with his powerful word, with just one word. Can you imagine? Jesus is not standing under the universe like Atlas with just the power of one word. Jesus upholds the universe and it obeys. And get this. This word universe right here is the word panta in Greek. And the word panta in Greek has the root word of pos. And the word pos means every or all. And so when you read this, and it says that God uphold, uh, the exact imprint and upholds the universe by the word of his power. And if it really truly means every or all, then it means you and me. So God... Through Jesus Christ, upholds you and me in the palm of his hands with the power of his word. Wow. That is awesome. He sustains us. He, he governs us. He, he holds us. He cares about us. He loves us. So God is servant, uh, sovereign also over history. God rules according to his purpose from each individual to the largest of nations. And God, sovereign over the minutest parts of your life, the most insignificant things in your life, to the biggest things in your life, to the smallest things in a nation, to the biggest things in a nation. God is sovereign over all of those things. On Wednesday nights, Bruce has been talking, uh, teaching us through the book of Judges. And when you get, and let me tell you, you should come Wednesdays at 6. It's been fabulous. 
But when you come to Judges chapter 14, we meet a character named Samson. Y'all remember Samson, long hair, muscle guy, strong. Mom and dad dedicated him to the Lord, never cut his hair. That's how he got his strength. And so when we get to Samson, Samson is an Israelite. I mean, uh, through and through, he loved his God. He loved his religion. He loved his faith, and so did his parents. And so when we get to chapter 14, we see uh, uh, Samson with all of his might and glory. I mean, here is the Lord's man. And he comes home and he says, Mom and Dad, I fell in love. I met the girl of my dreams. I mean, she's so beautiful. She's so kind. She is perfect. I want you to go to her mom and dad and get her to marry me. And by the way, she's a Philistine. Outside of her faith. Outside of his faith. I, 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 it's a big no-no. I, I want you to go get them. And mom and dad were like, listen, didn't we raise you right, boy? You're not supposed to marry outside of your faith. Had nothing to do with ethnicity. It's all about faith. And then God says in chapter 14, verse 4, it says his father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord. See, God put this young woman into Samson's heart, to Samson to marry because God had a purpose. He had a purpose in history. And if you come on Wednesday nights, I'm sure Bruce will share with us what that purpose is. I'm, I'm leading you on. Is that okay, Bruce? So come on Wednesday and you'll see. But here's the point. God chose Samson's wife for a purpose. And we learned in our study of Daniel, remember many times it said that God gave Judah over to the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. Listen, Nebuchadnezzar could have never whooped Judah if God didn't want him to whoop Judah. God gave Judah into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. And if you look at God has control over every king every potentate every president there is not a nation that is not under his control in psalm twenty-two, twenty-eight, it says for kingships belong to the lord and he rules over nations only god is the ruler it's not the president in the united states it's not the queen of england it's not anyone else in all of the world it is god the king of kings and the lord of lords he is the one is the ruler of all of history and above nations as well. God is sovereign over creation. He is sovereign over human history. And he is sovereign in redemption. Many times in my ministry, I've had people ask me. I've had them come to my office. I have them stop me on the way out of church. I, I mean, I, many, many times I've people, how do I know I'm truly saved? You know, I, I walked the aisle, I was baptized. How do I know if, I was, if I'm really saved? I don't feel like I'm doing enough. I, I, I feel like there's more for me to do. I, I feel like that I, I, I have to do something in order to help God be saved. I hear it all the time. Heard it last week, matter of fact, twice. So how do you answer someone like that? Maybe you've asked those questions yourself. How do I know? What do I need to do? Is there more than I need to do? See, when we talk about God's sovereignty over redemption, it simply means God did it all. There is nothing else for you to do. 
God did it all. That should be an amen right there. Because God did it all. All you have to do, the Bible says, is to accept Jesus Christ and believe on him. It says in John 10, right, does it say? It said, believe in your heart that Christ was raised from the dead and confess with your mouth. That's all you need to do. Jesus did everything else. He did it all. There is nothing more for you to do. If you have truly put your faith and trust in Christ and him alone, you are saved. You are born again. Listen to what Paul told to Timothy. God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works. He says, listen, there ain't enough works you can do. There ain't enough works. I don't care if all of us working on the same project forever and always, it ain't enough. He says, not because of your works, but because of his own purpose. God saved you. He has called you because he has a purpose for you. He has a purpose for you. Do you realize that? I said last night to the men after Randy, God made us for a purpose, and that purpose is to have a relationship with him. And I don't know what your particular purpose is. Maybe there is a next door neighbor that you need to share Christ with. Maybe it's somebody down the street that is sick and you need to take them something to eat. Maybe it's somebody that you need to help with an electric bill. I don't know what your specific purpose is, but I know what the Bible tells us that our purpose is. He tells us in Matthew 28, 19 and 20, to go ye therefore into all nations, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then he tells us twice in the Gospels to love the Lord with all of our heart our soul, our mind, and our strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. That is your purpose, period. How you accomplish that purpose, I don't know. That's between you and God. But that is our purpose. And you see, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, for it is by grace you have been saved not by works. There is nothing you can do. It is a free gift of God. Have you trusted in him and him alone? Look at this, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death. If you have not, whether you're watching online or you're sitting here in person, if you have not put your faith and trust in Christ and him alone, there is a death coming. And I'm not talking about your physical death because guess what? Every born again believer will experience a physical death. But there is an ultimate death, a spiritual death that is coming. Those that are born again, those that have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and him alone, they will go to heaven and spend an eternity with God, and those who haven't will go to a place called hell and spend eternity separated from God. And you know what it means to be separated from God? That there is nothing good, total bad. You think your life is hell on this earth? You wait till you get to the real hell. I implore you. I plead with you. Put your trust in Jesus. Is this your God? To say God is sovereign means you turn your life over to him in every aspect and way. See, I'm not just talking to those that may have never put their faith and trust in Jesus. I'm really, to be quite honest with you, I'm talking to all you born-again believers out here. 
I'm talking to myself. I'm talking to those that have put their faith and trust in Jesus. I'm talking about you because you say that God is sovereign, but you live your life the way you want to live it and not the way that he's called you to live it. Just think about your own thought life and that he knows, would it change right now? If God is truly sovereign, it starts in my heart and it starts in your heart. Yes, he's, he's sovereign over the universe. He's sovereign over nations and kings and kingdoms. But is he sovereign in your life? Is he your ruler, your master? Is he really your Lord? If he's truly sovereign, whatever he's telling you to do right now, maybe it's to trust in Christ, maybe it's come to this pew and just get on your face before God and repent, I don't know. Maybe it's to join the church. Maybe it's to forgive someone who's hurt you or to ask forgiveness because you've hurt someone else. See, if God is truly sovereign in your life, whatever is going on in your heart right now, that still small voice, that Holy Spirit that's talking to you, you'll be obedient regardless of the consequences because I can promise you, whatever they are, they're better than the alternative because they come from him. Is he truly sovereign in your life? Let's pray. Father, Thank you for your word and your love and your goodness. Thank you for your sovereignty. And Father, I pray it would begin in my heart. That you would be sovereign in every heart and every life that hears this message, Father. And we would just say yes, sir, when you call. Maybe this morning you need to join the church or make public what you've done about receiving Christ. Maybe God's calling you into the ministry or calling you to a place of service here at Hollybrook. Whatever it is, God, we give this time to you. In Jesus we pray. Let's stand together and say,